This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode consists of three segments from September 8th, 1943, covering the breaking news of Italy's surrender to the Allies. The first is a brief statement from General Dwight Eisenhower announcing the surrender. That is followed by comments on the surrender by President Roosevelt during a war bond drive that day. Finally, we have CBS News coverage and commentary on the surrender of Italy. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash WW2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Was in North Africa. Here is an important announcement from the Commander in Chief. This is General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Commander in Chief of the Allied Force. The Italian government has surrendered its armed forces unconditionally. As Allied Commander in Chief, I have granted a military armistice, the terms of which have been approved by the government of the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Thus I am acting in the interest of the United Nations. The Italian government has bound itself to abide by these terms without reservation. The armistice was signed by my representative and the representative of Marshal Badoglio, and it becomes effective this instant. Hostilities between the armed forces of the United Nations and those of Italy terminate at once. All Italians, who now act to help reject the German aggressor from Italian soil, will have the assistance and the support of the United Nations. My fellow Americans, once upon a time, a few years ago, there was a city in our Middle West which was threatened by a destructive flood in the Great River. The waters had risen to the top of the banks. Every man, woman, and child in that city was called upon to fill sandbags in order to defend their homes against the rising waters. For many days and nights, destruction and death stared them in the face. As a result of the grim, determined community effort, that city still stands. Those people kept the levees above the peak of the flood. All of them joined together in the desperate job that had to be done. Businessmen, workers, farmers and doctors and preachers, people of all races. To me, that town is a living symbol of what community cooperation can accomplish. 
Today, in the same kind of community effort, only very much larger, the United Nations and their peoples have kept the levees of civilization high enough to prevent the floods of aggression and barbarism and wholesale murder from engulfing us all. The flood has been raging for four years. At last, we are beginning to gain on it. But the waters have not yet receded enough for us to relax our sweating work with the sandbags. In this war bond campaign, we are filling bags and placing them against the flood, bags which are essential if we are to stand off the ugly torrent which is still trying to sweep us all away. Today it is announced that an armistice with Italy has been concluded. This was a great victory for the United Nations, but it was also a great victory for the Italian people. After years of war and suffering and degradation, the Italian people are at last coming to the day of liberation from their real enemies, the Nazis. But let us not delude ourselves that this armistice means the end of the war in the Mediterranean. We still have to drive the Germans out of Italy as we have driven them out of Tunisia and Sicily. We must drive them out of France and all other captive countries. And we must strike them on their own soil from all directions. Our ultimate objectives in this war continue to be Berlin and Tokyo. I ask you to bear these objectives constantly in mind and do not forget that we still have a long way to go before we attain them. The great news that you have heard today from General Eisenhower does not give you license to settle back in your rocking chairs and say, well, that does it. We've got them on the run. Now we can start the celebration. The time for celebration is not yet. And I have a suspicion that when this war does end, we shall not be in a very, very celebrating mood, a very celebrating frame of mind. I think that our main emotion will be one of grim determination that this shall not happen again. During the past weeks, Mr. Churchill and I have been in constant conference with the leaders of our combined fighting forces. We have been in constant communication with our fighting allies, Russian and Chinese, who are prosecuting the war with relentless determination and with conspicuous success on far distant fronts. And Mr. Churchill and I are here together in Washington at this crucial moment. We have seen the satisfactory fulfillment of plans that were made in Casablanca last January and here in Washington last May. And lately, we have made new, well-considered plans for the future. But throughout these conferences, we have never lost sight of the fact that this war will become bigger and tougher rather than easier during the long months that are to come. 
This world does not and must not stop for one single instant. Your fighting men know that. Those of them who are moving forward through jungles against lurking Japs, those who are landing at this moment in barges moving through the dawn up the strange enemy coasts, those who are diving their bombers down on the target at rooftop level at this moment, every one of these men knows that this war is a full-time job and that it will continue to be that until total victory is won. And by the same token, every responsible leader in all the United Nations knows that the fighting goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that any day lost may have to be paid for in terms of months added to the duration of the war. Every campaign, every single operation in all the campaigns that we plan and carry through must be figured in terms of staggering material costs. We cannot afford to be niggardly with any of our resources, for we shall need all of them to do the job that we have put our shoulder to. Your fellow Americans have given a magnificent account of themselves on the battlefields and on the oceans and in the skies all over the world. Now it is up to you to prove to them that you are contributing your share and more than your share. It is not sufficient simply to put into war bonds money which we would normally save. We must put into war bonds money which we would not normally save. Only then have we done everything that good conscience demands. So it is up to you, up to you, the Americans in the American homes, the very homes which our sons and daughters are working and fighting and dying to preserve. I know I speak for every man and woman throughout the Americas when I say that we Americans will not be satisfied to send our troops into the fire of the enemy with equipment inferior in any way. Nor will we be satisfied to send our troops with equipment only equal to that of the enemy. We are determined to provide our troops with overpowering superiority, superiority of quantity and quality, in any and every category of arms and armaments that they may conceivably need. And where does this odd dominating power come from? Why, it can come only from you. The money you lend and the money you give in taxes buys that death-dealing and at the same time life-saving power that we need for victory. This is an expensive war expensive in money. You can help it, you can help to keep it at a minimum cost in lives. The American people will never stop to reckon the cost of redeeming civilization. They know there never can be any economic justification for failing 
to save freedom. And we can be sure that our enemies will watch this drive with the keenest interest. They know that success in this undertaking will shorten the war. They know that the more money the American people lend to their government, the more powerful and relentless will be the American forces in the field. They know that only a united and determined America could possibly produce on a voluntary basis so huge a sum of money as $15 billion. The overwhelming success of the second war loan drive last April showed that the people of this democracy stood firm behind their troops. This third war loan, which we are starting tonight, will also succeed because the American people will not permit it to fail. I cannot tell you how much to invest in war bonds during this third war loan drive. No one can tell you. It is for you to decide under the guidance of your own conscience. I will say this, however, because the nation's needs are greater than ever before, our sacrifices, too, must be greater than they have ever been before. Nobody knows when total victory will come, but we do know that the harder we fight now, the more might and power we direct at the enemy now, the shorter the war will be and the smaller the sum total of sacrifice. Success of the third war alone will be the symbol that America does not propose to rest on its arms, that we know the tough, bitter job ahead and will not stop until we have finished it. Now, it is your turn. Every dollar that you invest in the third war loan is your personal message of defiance to our common enemies, to the ruthless savages of Germany and Japan. And it is your personal message of faith and good cheer to our allies and to all the men at the front God bless them. Canadian Press. This is to the Associated Press New York for the Canadian Press. Hunters 01840, Allied Force Headquarters, September 8th. General Eisenhower announced today that the immediate and unconditional surrender of the Italian armed forces. Repeat, General Eisenhower announced today the immediate and unconditional surrender of the Italian armed forces paragraph. The following statement by the Allied Commander-in-Chief was broadcast at 16.30 GMT over the United Nations radio paragraph, quote, the Italian government has surrendered its armed forces unconditionally. As Allied Commander-in-Chief, I have granted a military armistice, the terms of which have been approved by the governments of the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Thus, I am acting in the interest of the United Nations. The Italian government has bound itself to abide by these terms 
without reservation. The armistice was signed by my representative and the representative of Marshal Badoglio, and it becomes effective this instant. Hostilities between the armed forces of the United Nations and those of Italy terminate at once. All Italians who now act to help eject the German aggressor from Italian soil will have the assistance and support of the United Nations, unquote, end of this dispatch by Hunter or the Canadian press via the Associated Press. We've been listening to Algiers broadcasting a dispatch for the Canadian press, and this will be followed on the Algiers transmitter by other uh, dispatches, other press dispatches for press agencies, and then will come the uh, dispatch from Columbia's correspondent in Algiers, John Daly, which we shall bring you. But uh, at the moment, instead of bringing you more word from Algiers, which is largely duplication at this particular moment, in our New York studios here now in Columbia's news headquarters, we have Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. Judging from the tone of the dispatches and the wording of the communication from General Eisenhower, it looks very much as though the Italians are now expecting to have to join with the forces of the Allied nations to eject the German troops who may be remaining in Italian territory. It would be very, much, very surprising indeed if this news is not followed very shortly by news of the arrival of the American 7th Army to assist the Italians in this good work and to bring to an end any German resistance that may develop on Italian soil, or at least in peninsular Italy, though it may not be so easy to eject the Germans from northern Italy. We have no word as yet as to where the, German set, or the American 7th Army may be, but it will be surprising indeed if it is not very close indeed to a landing on Italian soil. What the Germans may be able to do in Italy depends, of course, on the strength they have there, on the positions their troops occupy at the moment that this takes place. It may have come as much as a surprise to the Germans as to anyone else. We don't know whether there are very many German troops from southern Italy. Probably not. There are a good many German troops in the north. We don't know whether we are going to get immediate possession of Sardinia or Corsica. These would be of very great importance, and from these island positions, it might be quite possible to direct an attack against the south of France within the next few weeks if the proper bases can be developed in these islands. Whether the Italians are going to be able to surrender any of the islands of the Aegean is also a very important strategic consideration. Probably not Crete, because in Crete the German garrison greatly outnumbers the Italians, but it is possible that Rhodes or Leros might be surrendered. We have no news of the Italian fleet. Some of its units were reported as having gone to Pola in the northern Adriatic, where probably we couldn't get at them because the Germans are in considerable strength in the whole Istrian Peninsula, Trieste and Pola in that general region. Other units of the Italian fleet, however, may be included in the armistice, and if they are in Taranto or Spezia or the other Italian naval bases as distinguished from Pola, that is those at which the Italians can deliver, that will make a great difference. The Italian garrisons in the Balkans must, of course, stop fighting, lay down their arms, and that will be of great assistance to us there because the Germans will have to replace them. In fact, that process has been going on for some time. The effect of the Italian surrender on the other German satellite states will have military repercussions of the very greatest importance. In Bulgaria, for example, there, where there is political chaos as a result of the assassination of King Boris, there are some 18 Bulgarian divisions involved which may now become unavailable as German satellite troops. This may open a way into the Balkan Peninsula for the forces of the British 9th and 10th Armies now in the Middle East under command of General Wilson. 
how this uh, surrender of Italy will be followed up in the military sense is, of course, the crucial and important news of the moment. That We don't have any details on that, but it, it seems almost certain, as I said at the beginning of this broadcast, that such news must follow very quickly. And we should keep our minds fixed on the thought that this armistice may have come as much as a surprise to the Germans as it did to us when we were not expecting it here. The Germans in Italy also may not have been expecting it, and we may see the Italians turning toward the ejection of the Germans from their country. We may see the curious spectacle of Allied troops fighting side by side with a new ally, the Italians, in the course of these operations. That was Major George Fielding Elliott, Columbia's military analyst, discussing the unconditional surrender of the Italian armed forces. While all this has been going on, Columbia's shortwave listening station has been listening to the Rome radio, and Rome radio has been providing some very interesting listening indeed. For example, in a broadcast to the Middle East just an hour before the surrender was announced, Rome radio was still striking a militant note and indeed forecast that a battle will be fought with great violence in the next few days on the positions held by the Italian-German troops who will take full advantage of the difficulties which the terrain presents for an invader. Rome, characterized as slander and lies, reports that the local populations are rejoicing at the invading forces or that whole detachments are surrendering. And Rome Radio said all that just an hour before the surrender was announced. Then, ten minutes after Allied headquarters announced the unconditional surrender of the Italian armed forces, Rome Radio was talking about the peacock in Italy and what they mean was a real peacock, not a metaphorical one. And now to hear reaction from today's sensational news from Washington, D.C., we take you now to CBS in Washington, George Murad reporting. The official reaction in Washington to Italy's unconditional surrender has just been expressed by the president. He said it's General Eisenhower's story. Let him tell it. But the public reaction is something much more colorful. The news found this crowded capital all set for a noontime celebration. Although, of course, they didn't know it would be Italy. A big military parade with a flock of movie stars here to open the third war loan drive was on its way down Pennsylvania Avenue with the Army band playing the Army Air Corps song when the news came over the radio and from loudspeakers in the Army trucks. People hung out of windows cheering, and the noontime street parade went wild. And then a few minutes later, Washington newspapers came out with huge black banner lines, Italy quit. There was no immediate comment from the War Department since this official word of military armistice comes from General Eisenhower in North Africa. However, observers said it would be reasonable to expect General Patton's 7th Army to show up at the right place very soon. Yesterday, you remember, censors at Allied GHQ passed a very thinly veiled story that the air bombardment of Naples looked suspiciously like a softening up process previous to amphibious landing. This morning, Berlin Radio, which all along has been watching for the Americans to land somewhere in Italy, said two large Anglo-American convoys have sailed from Palermo, Sicily, and that these expeditions total roughly 200 merchant and transport vessels. The obvious conclusion, then, is that General Patton's men will land very soon, but with a victory march instead of an amphibious assault. Very conveniently, Prime Minister Churchill and President Roosevelt are now in Washington. They received the news some time ago, and it's likely that further comment will follow General Eisenhower. Observers consider it likely the two leaders finalized their plans for unconditional surrender at Quebec, 
and have since followed negotiations of the Allied Armistice Committee in Italy. Comment is also expected soon from Secretary Cordell Hull, who only three days ago named his economic director for Italy, Mr. C.B. Baldwin, former head of the Farm Security Administration. The chief impression from the Capitol, then, is that everything is set from the military, political, and economic viewpoint. We're all ready to handle it. I return you now to Bob Trout in New York. That was reaction from Washington, D.C. Now, later on this broadcast, as we have been telling you, we shall bring you a report from Colombia's correspondent in Algiers. Meanwhile, it's interesting to reflect that uh, knocking Italy out of World War II parallels the first surrender among the Central Powers in the First World War, and that first Central Power then was Bulgaria. The first Axis power to collapse, Italy quit almost exactly four years after this Second World War began on September 1939 with the German invasion of Poland. Italy entered the Second World War in June of 1940. In the First World War, Bulgaria, crumpling under a brilliant offensive carried out by French, British, Italian, Greek, Serbian, Czechoslovak, and Yugoslav forces, signed an armistice which also was for unconditional surrender on September 29, 1918. And that was just four years and two months after the First World War started on July 28, 1914, with the Austria-Hungary declaration of war against Serbia. The First World War was all over 43 days after Bulgaria surrendered. In fact, it was only four days later, on October the 3rd, that Germany, suffering from crushing blows by Allied armies and strangling economically in the grip of the British naval blockade, sent to President Woodrow Wilson an appeal for an immediate armistice. But before the armistice with Germany was worked out and signed November 11, 1918, the two other remaining central powers, Turkey and Austria-Hungary, surrendered. Both of them gave up on October 30th. Here uh, in New York, only this morning, the New York Herald Tribune was saying that the first firm Allied landing on the continent is proceeding in a curious atmosphere of anti-climax and a baffling obscurity, both military and political. The Herald Tribune pointed out that the Eighth Army was advancing and generally being welcomed by the populace, almost without resistance from the second-line Italian troops left in the area. Significantly, this newspaper in New York said that the Allies were advancing in Italy under somewhat elusive directives. The editorial quoted a guidebook issued to the troops as they took off for the invasion of the Calabrian coast. And this guidebook said, the policy of Britain and America is to treat Italians differently from Germans. We're entering the country primarily so that, having knocked Italy out of the war, we can set about finishing off our main enemy in Europe, Germany. On this, the Herald Tribune commented, the Italian campaign, then, is simply a sideshow. Italy is to be knocked out of the war merely as an incidental to coming to grips with Germany. But trying to knock Italy out of the war by landing on the extreme tip of Calabria is rather like trying to knock the United States out of the war by a landing at Key West. So the paper points out, it's difficult not to believe that the Calabrian landing is merely a feint covering more effective operations about to be undertaken elsewhere.